Would you please join me in prayer? O risen Christ, open us to the power of your resurrection as we hear it proclaimed anew this day, that we too might rise to new life in you. Amen. It is a profound joy, as Sarah said, to be in worship with all of you this Easter. Welcome. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist by day and a fiction writer by night. He has written a small book entitled Some, comprised of 40 fictional tales from the afterlife. They are imaginative and cleverly thought-provoking. In one of these tales from the afterlife, everyone undergoes three deaths. The first is when the body ceases to function. The second is when the body is consigned to a grave. The third is that moment, sometime in the future, when your name is spoken for the last time. Until that moment, until your name is spoken for the last time, you wait in a lobby. The lobby resembles an airport lobby full of people from all around the world. All of them are waiting to be called by the callers who broadcast your name to indicate that your name was remembered for the last time on earth. As you watch people whose names have just been called, you notice them slump with sadness. Unfortunately, some of these people leave the lobby, which is what they do when their names are called, just as their loved ones arrive, most likely because their loved ones were the ones doing the remembering. To your surprise, though, not everyone is sad to have their names called out. On the contrary, some people beg and plead, prostrating themselves at the caller's feet, these are generally the folks who have been here a long time, too long, especially those who are remembered for unfair reasons. For example, take the farmer over there who drowned in a small river 200 years ago. Now his farm is the site of a small college and the tour guides each week tell his story. So he's stuck and he's miserable. The more his story is told, the more the details drift. He is utterly alienated from his name. It is no longer identical with him, but continues to bind. The cheerless woman across the way is praised as a saint, even though the roads in her heart were more complicated. The gray-haired man at the vending machine was lionized as a war hero, then demonized as a warlord, and finally canonized as a necessary firebrand between two moments in history. He waits with aching heart for his statues to fall. And that is the curse of this room. Since we live in the heads of those who remember us, we lose control of our lives and become who they want us to be. It's true that we do not have control over how we will be remembered. 
A number of variables can influence what people remember about us. Until I read this imaginative tale from the afterlife, I hadn't really thought about how vexing, heartbreaking, irritating this could be from the perspective of the deceased. At most, I've heard people speak about the legacy they hope to leave behind. Surely, there are meaningful actions that can be taken to shape what is remembered. Stories can be shared about a person's life. Rituals can commemorate people and events. Memorials can be established. When my close friend Laura passed away after years of fighting cancer, I observed her husband doing all these things. He worked with their church to plan a memorial service. He commissioned a talented artist to cast a statue of her as the first Chinese-American to serve as a judge in Chicago. And he worked with the city to erect it on a green space in Chicago's Chinatown. These were efforts to remember her publicly, privately, for his own sake and for their young daughter's sake. He hung Laura's photos, blown up larger than life-size, on the walls of their family room. These photos, so large and vibrant with color, matched the boldness and brightness of my friend, so much so that I could almost feel Laura's energy and spirit just by encountering them. This was the intention, he said, because he wanted them to remember Laura not as she was at the end of her life, when the cancer had ravaged her body, but as she was during her life, when she was living life to the fullest. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, psychologist Daniel Kahneman writes about the research he and others have conducted to learn about the kinds of things our memories focus on. According to Daniel Kahneman, when we remember a person's life, including our own, what stands out in our memories are often the few critical moments of that life, especially the beginning, the peak moments, and the end. Oftentimes, what happened in between those moments in the duration of life is neglected or discounted by our memories. If the peak of a painful experience were to take place at the end of life, you can be pretty certain that that is what people will remember, even if there were lovely years of experiences that preceded it. It's all too easy for us, Kahneman says, to confuse experience with our memory of it. And it is the substitution that makes us believe a past experience can be ruined. Having witnessed only two days earlier the crucifixion of Jesus, a public execution of the highest order designed to strike terror across the land, can you imagine what the disciples remembered of Jesus? Do you think they were remembering their walks with Jesus around the Sea of Galilee? Their many meals with Jesus at tables and on the shore? Do you think they were remembering the lessons he taught them or the example that he set for them? 
Do you think that they were remembering how he interpreted scripture and what he said about himself? I doubt it. In fact, we know that they were not. With their minds still focused on the terrifying and tragic death, the disciples, including the women, had to be reminded of what Jesus had told them would happen to him. When the women came to the tomb with the spices they had prepared only to find Jesus' body not there, they became yet more distressed. Suddenly, two angels appeared beside them and reminded them what Jesus had told them while he was living. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Later that day, appearing to the two of the disciples on their way to Emmaus, Jesus himself had to reprimand them for having forgotten what he had said. Finding them unable to incorporate into their thoughts what they had heard from the women. Finding them so focused on his death that they couldn't take in his resurrection. Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. And then Jesus reminded them too of what he had taught while he had been with them. That he was to suffer, be crucified, and then on the third day, rise. What would be remembered about Jesus was critically important to all the gospel writers. All of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were trying to do their part to prevent the significance of who Jesus was and of what he said and did from becoming lost, forgotten, misremembered, or twisted. For the more historically-minded Luke, who intends to record all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, the desire to safeguard Jesus' purpose and how people would remember him seems particularly strong. Perhaps this is why, in Luke's telling, the resurrected Jesus takes several opportunities to correct and complete the memories of the disciples. Perhaps this is why, before his ascension, the resurrected Jesus took the opportunity to say one final time, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Without these reminders, it would have been all too easy for Jesus' life to have been overshadowed by his horrific death. That was the end that the Jewish religious authorities of Jesus' day had counted on. It was, by design, the definitive end that the Roman Empire had intended. They wanted not only to kill Jesus, but also to stamp out the life he inspired. And we get it. Unfortunately, it doesn't take any stretch of our imaginations to believe that Jesus was crucified. And unfair and evil, as unfair and evil as his crucifixion was, we know that peoples everywhere, in Baghdad, Rwanda, Germany, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, North Korea, Syria, 
Ukraine, and the United States can believe it. But this was certainly not the end God had planned. God's plan was to make sure we remember not the terror of Jesus' death, not someone else's lies about his life, not the propaganda of the empire, but that Jesus was resurrected and the life for which he was resurrected. Any effort to grasp resurrected life in Christ can feel overwhelmingly inadequate. But you recognize it when you see it. It's much easier to turn our attention to death. Matters of death and alienation from God seem much more manageable somehow. Late February, as Russian forces were positioning themselves to invade Ukraine, the world kept its eyes glued on this stunning possibility. At the same time, the startling news came out that Dr. Paul Farmer had died. I felt sorry that once again, the world's attention was having to focus on events so destructive and life-threatening instead of on efforts that were life-saving and life-giving. Anyone who saw his efforts would have recognized some quality of Christian resurrection life. I had first heard about Paul Farmer when I met my husband. Having dedicated his life to making available world-class health care, even building world-class hospitals for the poorest communities on the planet, communities in Haiti, Rwanda, Peru, and Sierra Leone, Paul Farmer inspired the medical and public health community and beyond. It is no wonder that he is probably, has been probably invited to give more commencement addresses at universities, medical schools, and seminaries than any other individual. At his memorial service, Dr. Jim Young Kim, co-founder of Partners in Health, an organization that Paul Farmer led, gave a eulogy. When his friend died, he said, it felt like tectonic plates had shifted and the devastation was spreading around the world to all the places and people who had been transformed by Paul's fearless dedication and, most of all, his kindness. He went on to say that the most remarkable thing about his friend was that he made great, personally difficult choices every day. Choices to put the suffering of others first and that the decisions he made every day reverberated throughout the world. I was struck by the way Dr. Kim put this, because it describes clearly and concretely how we can try to live as disciples of a resurrected Christ. Hallelujah. Without being doctors, all of us can make personally difficult choices every day, choices that put the suffering of others first. This is what discipleship after Easter entails. When Jesus was alive, it had been possible for his followers to imagine a world in which poor people were blessed, sick people were healed, prisoners were visited, and people with nothing to eat could enjoy themselves at a picnic for 5,000. Now that Jesus is resurrected, 
and the powers of death and destruction are defeated, Christ's disciples can do more than imagine these things. We can work for them. We can live like we mean them. For you see, Easter is not simply the reason we thank God for what we imagine will happen when our lives are over. It is the reason we call upon Christ with confidence and work for God's kingdom in this life with confidence. Amen. Amen.